Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for us. May we always proclaim his death until he returns. We also thank you for the gift of your word. And may your spirit who caused it to be written give us understanding today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34. Jeremiah 34. We are leaving what is known as the Book of Consolation, chapters 30 through 33, and moving on to chapter 34. But before we do that, there's some things that I wanted to review and and to clarify. In this previous section, particularly in chapter 32, we saw Jeremiah as a man of faith. We saw this in two actions. First, the fact that he buys a piece of land in his hometown of Anathoth. And secondly, his prayer to God. And as I mentioned last Sunday, faith must be tied to action. It is exercised in the present, but it is tied to the past and to the future. But what is faith? I thought we might revisit this issue as it is key to what it means to be a child of God. In Hebrews 11, we are told without faith it is impossible to please God. And in Romans 1, Paul quotes the book of Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. I would argue that for the most part, we tend not to have a holistic view of faith. Thomas Aquinas, one of the church fathers, said, Faith is the act of the intellect when it assents to divine truth under the influence of the will moved by God through grace. This is, I think, in many ways, an over-intellectualized view of faith that reduces faith to a formula of sorts. Well, to come to someone not known as a theologian, but in church circles, Norman Vincent Peale said, first thing every morning before you arise, say out loud, I believe three times. And while Aquinas' definition was an intellectualized one, at least it had content, divine truth, assent to divine truth. Peale's had no content. It's merely the act of believing. It's what Francis Schaeffer used to call faith in faith. It's believing, but not actually having any content. This is not biblical faith. Biblical faith must have content. But what content is required? As we saw in Jeremiah, and I mentioned a minute ago, faith is exercised in the present, in the moment. It's very existential, but it is tied to the past and to the future. But the content is still the issue we must deal with. In the past we see not only what God has done, but what it tells us about God. So we saw in Jeremiah's prayer that he recalled the past and God's actions. But more than his actions, what they told Jeremiah and the people of Israel about God. God is the creator. For example, his prayer begins. And I've argued that this must be the beginning point of any discussion, and I think We should consider it as the beginning point of our prayers. I was reminded of this as I was looking up uh, Hebrews 11.6 for the sermon. Uh, This is where the author begins. 
Because if you remember the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it is the faith chapter by faith, and it just goes on and on and on. But the very first statement in verse number three, by faith we understand that the universe was created at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So the beginning of faith is that God created the world and God is the creator. Jeremiah's prayer continues that God is faithful and just and he is the redeemer of his people. But we can't simply say these things out of thin air. There must be some evidence from the past, from history, that illustrate these truths, that are proofs of God's being the creator, of his being faithful, of his being just, and his being a redeemer. It is, by the way, also in the past that we find the commands, the commandments, the instructions for how we are to live our lives. But we tend to forget the past. And as someone who teaches history, I'm acutely aware of this. I am reminded, if you will forgive me, of the opening lines of the movie version of Fellowship of the Rings from Lord of the Rings. It is the voice of Galadriel who is saying these things. The world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. And some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend. Legend became myth. I feel that one could say almost the same thing about Scripture, at least the way that many people look about Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, that it is legend or myth and not history, which means it cannot serve as the anchor to our faith. If we are exercising faith in the present but anchored in the past and looking to the future, if this is just myth, if it's just legend, then there actually is no substance to it. And so God is not the one revealed by his actions in the Old Testament. God is reduced to whatever people want him to be. Or should we say for some, whatever they want her to be. Because they make up God in their own image rather than looking to God as revealed in Scripture. Without an anchor in who God is as seen in the past, the whole meaning and dynamic of faith is radically changed. And one is left with Norman Vincent Peale's, I believe, I believe, I believe, but having no content whatsoever. It's just faith and faith. As I said last Sunday, that this, this view of faith, of being tied to the past as well as looking to the future, is true of us as well. We just heard these words a few moments ago in the Lord's Supper. On the night he was betrayed, that is past, and then at the end proclaim his death until he comes, that is future. But it is more than just history. The past for us should be much more than just history. What can we learn from what we read in this passage? That on the night he was betrayed, Jesus instituted the new covenant. What does this teach us? What does this reveal to us about our Savior? that he knew he was going to be betrayed. He allowed himself to be betrayed. He knew that his death was coming within hours. And yet, his thought was for his disciples, for us. His thought was to institute the new covenant in his blood, knowing that it would require his death. This is how we are to view Scripture, not simply as history, but as revelation of who God is. 
Remembrance is the key to faith in the Old Testament. Remembering the essence, or remembering is the essence of faith for Israel. So time after time, they are reminded. So they celebrate Passover. They celebrate Yom Kippur. These happen every year. These are reminders of who God is and what he has done. But what about the future? Keep talking about the past, but what about the future? In fact, this is usually what people associate with faith. You believe that God will do this for you if you have enough faith, so we are told. Jeremiah is a man of faith, but he does not know what God is going to do. In his prayer, he thinks that perhaps, just maybe, God will change his mind and not destroy Jerusalem. Could that be why Jeremiah was given the opportunity to buy land in his hometown? We need to be clear on this, particularly when it comes to the matter of faith. We do not know the future. Last Sunday, Gia read to us from Matthew 24. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I must be honest, I'm not sure what all that means, that only the Father knows and not the Son. But I am fascinated that in spite of this statement, many people have tried to predict, have sought to know when the second coming will happen. But this all ties in with a twisted and a less than wholesome view of faith. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, which was written in 1948, described the modern view of things, which he saw as uh, applied science or technology or magic. Um, He relates the technological approach to problems as the approach of magicians. The problem for them is, how do I subdue reality to the wishes of men? The magician or the genie comes out of the bottle And it remakes reality to fit our needs. What do you want? You have three wishes. Tell me what you want. And the genie will reshape reality to fit our wishes. Modern technology seeks to do the same thing. We have our wishes. We want to reconstruct reality. We have certain desires. And we want to change nature so as to meet our desires. This modern view of things, this magical view of things, has infected all of us. And in fact, I think it has changed, for many of us, our view of faith incorrectly. It's twisted it. We have our wishes, our desires, and we may even try to sanctify them with Christian language. And then faith is seen as the way to get the things that you want. It's like a new technology or a new magic. Do you want something? If you have enough faith, God will do what it is that you want. But this is not a biblical view of faith. This is a perversion of faith. Faith is to be rooted in the past, remembrance. But there's another aspect of the Jewish view of faith in the Old Testament, and that is fear. Remembrance remembrance with regard to the past, but fear in many ways as we face the future. And faith is there to confront fear. Our fear includes the fear of the future, a fear of death, the unknown, and many more things. And the temptation for us is to somehow devise tools or find tools or methods 
to control our destiny. What fascinates and yet at the same time enslaves us as human beings is this overpowering sense of being unable to control our destiny. We want to be able to control our destinies. And so again, technology promises to do that. Magic promises to do that. And if we're not careful, we will twist faith in such a way to say, if you have enough faith, then nothing bad will happen to you. Everything you want will happen for you. And life will just be wonderful. This is not faith. And this is not the answer. Faith is to rest in a faithful God who has proved himself in the past and who waits for us in the future. In the Old Testament, God's faithfulness is foundational. You you can't get away from it. God is faithful. He who has revealed himself in the past will reveal himself more fully in the future. And he is the one we are to trust. This is what faith is about. But for the meantime, we live in the present with a lot of tension. In many ways, I think, sort of pulled between the past and the future with all the difficulties and problems we face. As one writer puts it, man takes refuge from his own frailty and instability, and we are frail and unstable. He takes refuge in God who is firm and steadfast. This is faith. To trust God in this moment, right now, while anchored to his revelation in the past and looking to his revelation in the future. John's first epistle, I think, illustrates this. He begins with the known past. The first verse, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim regarding the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. I think it's important for us to know that John is not simply writing to answer the Gnostics, though I think that may be part of it. The Gnostics thought that anything material was evil, and John's saying, listen, God's come down in the flesh, and we've seen him, we've touched him, we've heard him. Materiality is not evil. He's telling us about revelation, the word of life, life and eternal life. But then later in his book, in chapter 3, he speaks of the future, which is somewhat unknown, but not completely. Chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, we're not clear about exactly what the future is going to be like, but we do know this. We do know the past. This ties into two other things I want to talk about briefly before I move on. And that is with Jeremiah and with the prophets, but even in the New Testament with Mary, as I mentioned last week. As they speak of the future, what God will do, they speak in terms of what God has done. So when Mary says, my soul doth extol the Lord, just praise the Lord, she is in fact not saying, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to have a baby, 
and he's going to do this. He's going to heal people, and he's going to preach, and he's going to live to be about 33 years old, and he's going to be crucified. She knew nothing of that. We do not know the future. But she knew what God had done in the past, and that is the language of her prayers. And the same is true of Jeremiah. As he speaks, God is telling him things are going to happen, but Jeremiah uses language of what has happened in the past to describe what is going to happen in the future. We must be careful as we read the Old Testament that we don't stay there in that language because, as I mentioned last week, and this is the second thing, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So if you want to see what is it that Jeremiah is talking about, you simply need to look to Jesus of Nazareth to see what is being said. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All promises God has made are fulfilled in Jesus. Yes, in Jesus. And we as God's people say amen. That's right. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In chapter 33, we have something that's, I think hard for us to miss a very strong messianic prophecy. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And Jesus is the yes. To that promise. There's so much more, but we need to move on to our passage today. We're going to look at chapter 34 and just some historical background. There are actually two parts to this chapter. In the first seven verses, um, these things actually take place before chapters 32 and 33. Uh, Jeremiah is not in prison yet. The Lord tells him to go and see Zedekiah. He couldn't do that if he was in prison. The siege of Jerusalem has begun, the final siege. Within months, the city will fall and will be destroyed. And Jeremiah is told to go to Zedekiah the king and give him the word of the Lord. The second part of the chapter begins in verse 8 and runs to the end of the chapter. And this takes place a year before when Babylon first came to lay siege to Jerusalem. And then they sort of got off track and went down to Egypt because of the Egyptians. They will, in fact, come back and finish the job, which is what mentioned in verses 1 through 7. The first seven verses, I would say, talk about good news, but small comfort. Look, if you would, at the first seven verses. Verse 1, while Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms and peoples in the empire he ruled were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding towns, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Go to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, this is what the Lord says. I am about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will burn it down. You will not escape from his grasp, but he, but will surely be captured and handed over to him. You will see the king of Babylon with your own eyes, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Yet hear the promise of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord says concerning you. You will not die by the sword. You will die peacefully. As people made a funeral pyre or fire in honor of your fathers, 
the former kings who preceded you, so they will make a fire in your honor and lament, Alas, O Master, I myself make this promise, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet told all this to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. While the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah that were still holding out Lachish and Azekah, these were the only fortified cities left in Judah. The message seems fairly clear. Babylon is going to take Jerusalem and burn it down. Um, But Zedekiah needs to be reminded of something, and so do we. Although it is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and then all the the subject states that are the vassal states that are with him fighting against Jerusalem, even though they are the ones who are going to do battle against Jerusalem, it is the Lord who will hand Jerusalem over to them. This is the Lord's doing. From Jeremiah 39, we find that, in fact, the things that Jeremiah speaks of here came to pass. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then we are told that Zedekiah is going to be captured. He will not escape. Again, in chapter 39, verse 4, when Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, that is, the Babylonians were already in the city, they fled, they left the city at night by way of the king's gardens through the gate between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. He was going to be captured, and it happened. Then he's told that he would see the king of Babylon with his own eyes, and the king would speak to him face to face. For two weeks now, I've wondered about this particular passage. It seems a rather strange statement that he would get to see the king face to face. Um, But there's something not being said. Something that the Lord is not telling Jeremiah, that Jeremiah is not telling Zedekiah. Let me read to you. They captured him, that is Zedekiah, and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. So he did see him. He did hear Nebuchadnezzar speak to him face to face. But that's not the end of the story. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. That's why he talks about his eyes. And also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Yes, Zedekiah would see Nebuchadnezzar and his cruelty. It would be among the last things that he saw before his eyes were put out. Zedekiah was going to be taken to Babylon. And we see this in the very last chapter of Jeremiah in chapter 52, that they put him in shackles and took him to Babylon. He is promised that he would die peacefully. Perhaps he thought this was wonderful. Well, he died in prison, but he did not die by the sword. And we're told that Zedekiah would be mourned. This is a practice that is only mentioned in passing. We have no specifics on this. Let me just read you two passages. One is in Second Chronicles 16. It's about the king Asa, who died, who was well-loved by his people. Uh, then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his honor. 
So apparently it was a custom that when someone uh, important died that they would burn, they would make a big fire. In Second Chronicles 21, we are also told about this practice, but here it's in a negative sense, that it was not done. His people made no fire in his honor as they had for his fathers. This is Jehoram. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. I just find this fascinating. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. They didn't make a fire for him. As to the things said to Zedekiah, the Lord says, I myself make this promise. And the Lord keeps his promises. Now we come to the second part of this chapter. We would call this breaking faith. The time frame is given in the last two verses, in verses 21 and 22. Babylon had come up against Jerusalem, but then had left because of Egypt, but then had come back. It is in between Babylon leaving and them coming back. When they left, people said, oh, things are not as bad as we thought. And they broke faith, as we will see, because Babylon had left. But Babylon does come back and finishes the job. Verses 8 through 10. The word, or this word, came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So all the officials and people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free. As I said, we're not given a time frame for this, but I, I suspect that it happened while the Babylonians were away because, well, actually, I think it started when the Babylonians were there and people were like, we need to do something good. You know, we need... We need to show the Lord that we're really, really sorry for the things that we've done. And what they come up with is we need to free the slaves as we were supposed to. And so they do that. It has been suggested that when the Babylonians were first there, people ran out of food. And the bad thing about having slaves is you have to feed them. Okay? If you free them, then you're no longer obligated to feed them. And so perhaps cynically they thought, let's get rid of our slaves and therefore they won't be a burden on us. But look at verse number 11. But afterward, they changed their minds and took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said, every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. After he has served you six years, you must let him go free. Your fathers, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. Recently, you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen. 
So now I proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord, freedom to fall by the sword, plague, and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf. I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. I will hand Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials over to their enemies who seek their lives, to the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. I am going to give the order, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to the city. They will fight against it, take it, and burn it down, and I will lay waste the towns of Judah. No one can live there. When we go back to Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, we are given very clearly the rules or the laws regarding slavery. If someone became impoverished, if someone became bankrupt, we would say in modern terms, they didn't have a job, they couldn't feed themselves, that person could sell himself or herself into slavery. That is, they could go to a fellow Hebrew and say, listen, I am willing to be your slave for six years because in the seventh year they were to be set free. The seventh year, the Sabbath year. Um, slavery for us has very negative connotations because it is uh, associated with, I think, a form of slavery quite different than what we find in the Old Testament. There it was, in many ways, a safety net so that if people became impoverished, they wouldn't have to starve to death. They would simply go and work for someone for a period of time, and that person would feed them and take care of them. It was a temporary situation. The seventh year was the year of freedom, And the reason for freeing, I think, is very clear. Israel had just come out of slavery. God had freed them after 430 years of slavery in Egypt. It would seem somewhat ridiculous to then allow Hebrews to be perpetual slaves. So you have a temporary arrangement, and they are to be set free in the seventh year. From what we read in this passage, the Jews had not followed this practice. They had not set their slaves free. They had kept them until they died. Just parenthetically, if in fact a person wanted to remain a slave after six years for the rest of their lives, there was a mechanism for doing that. But it was the slave's decision, not the master's. Okay? Well, apparently that's not what the Jews had been doing. They had been holding their fellow Hebrews, their fellow Jews, as slaves for all their lives. But something happens here that we're told about in chapter 34. The people of Jerusalem and Judah decide for once to obey the Lord. They are going to set all of their slaves free. There is a mass freeing of the slaves, not seventh year free. They're going to set free all of their Hebrew slaves. And they did it because of repentance. As it says in verse 15, recently you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. Along with this mass freeing of slaves, they swore a covenant. That is, 
equivalent of signing a contract or putting your hand on the Bible and raising your hand. They made an oath. This, you are free and you are not ours anymore. Uh, We're not told much about it. And the only other time we see something similar to this is in Genesis chapter 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham. And he told Abraham, you get three animals and cut them in half and then get birds and the birds you put on either side. And then Abraham and the Lord walked between these animals. Now, I think if we didn't have chapter 34, we might not be clear about what that's all about. But it is, in fact, what is known as a self-maledictory oath. Big term. It simply means as you walk between a calf that's been cut in half, you walk between it and you say, I swear before God that if I do not keep my covenant or my oath, may I be cut in half like this calf. You're basically saying, let this happen to me if I don't keep my covenant. You know, today people say, may God strike me dead. Well, back then it was, may God cut me in half the way we have cut this calf in half. And they did it in the temple area. They did it in the presence of God. And what did they do? As soon as things cleared up, the Babylonians left. They changed their minds. And the slaves that they had freed, they enslaved again. Uh, You may notice that Jeremiah talks about the leaders uh, of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests. I think he mentions them because without their complicity, these people could not have been enslaved again. If I had freed a slave and then I go and try to enslave him again, all he'd have to do is go to the magistrate and say, listen, Your Honor, I was set free. They swore an oath, a covenant. I'm free. The only way that I can be enslaved again is if the the judge says, no, you're a slave. You belong to that master. And these people did something horrible, and that is they broke a covenant that they had made. God says, okay, you, took, you, you, know, you gave them freedom and you took it away. Guess what? I'm going to give you freedom. And in the NIV, it has it in quotation marks. So we know that it, God is being very ironic. They will, they will be free. They will have freedom to be put to death by the sword, famine, and plague. And then language that we've heard before, I will make you abhorrent to all the nations of the earth. I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And guess what? God's going to bring back the Babylonians. He's calling them back, and they will finish the job that they started. At this point, we might be thinking, okay, you know, what they did was wrong. It was sort of a dirty trick, you know, that they freed the slaves, but then they took them back. Um... But doesn't it sound like overkill for God to say, I'm bringing back the Babylonians, they're going to burn down the city, and you all are going to die, and you're going to be food for the birds of the air? Doesn't the punishment sound too harsh? Well, consider this. Their actions were supposedly the result of repentance. They had said to God, we're sorry. And we know in the New Testament that repentance is turning away from something that is wrong and you turn to that which is right. 
They had turned away from this. They had turned to that which was right. But as soon as the Babylonians leave, they unrepent, if you wish, and they go back to that which is wrong. And they entered into a covenant in the presence of God in the temple area. And then they broke this covenant. Well, certainly the covenant had the penalty clause. You know, the calf cut in half made this happen to us if we break this covenant. They freely entered into this covenant. No one forced them to. They, they chose to do it. I, I think, of course, they didn't think. You know, when people say, oh, may God strike me dead. I mean, some of them, you know, they, you know they're lying through their teeth. They, but they just never think God's going to strike them dead. I think they never thought, yeah, God's going to cut us in half if we don't keep this covenant. But the Lord said he would. And that's precisely what happened. I think there's something here, though, more than simply breaking a covenant. There's a phrase in this passage that may sound familiar. Each of you proclaimed liberty to his countrymen. Does that ring any bells? Uh, No pun intended, as you'll see in a minute. Regarding the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, the Lord instructs Israel, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It's once on the liberty bell. Proclaim liberty. They violated the past. Faith is tied to the past. What about the future? The first time that Jesus preached in Nazareth after being baptized and being in the wilderness, he read from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in violating the covenant, in proclaiming freedom, setting free slaves, but then enslaving them again, they in fact were violating that which was fulfilled in Jesus. It is a violation of what God wanted. And those who broke the covenant would pay the penalty. They would be handed over to their enemies. You know, to enter into a covenant in the presence of God is no small thing. I think if we would all be honest, we've all made promises to God that we were not kept. Usually in moments of difficulty, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll never do whatever it is, or I promise I'll do this. And then after the danger passes, we're like, what was I so worked up about? That was no big thing. And we completely forget about the promises we've made to God. But to make a covenant in the presence of God is no small thing. We would do well to keep that in mind. It used to be said that a man's word was his bond. And then it sort of evolved into a handshake. Now we have contracts, but even those don't seem to work anymore. We who are God's people should be very sensitive to what it means to enter into a covenant. 
God has entered into covenant with us. This is the new covenant in my blood. How dare we treat that lightly? We should not. And lastly, as I mentioned at the beginning, faith is living in the present. We are to live by faith now. But it is anchored in the past, God's revelation of himself in the past. And it looks forward to when God will reveal himself more fully. As Paul said, now we only see in part, see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. So we only know a bit now. We know a lot from the past, or at least we should. One day we will know as we are known. For now, we live by faith. We trust God, the God who created the world, who is faithful and just, and who has redeemed his people. Let's pray together. Father, we've talked about many things today. Help us by your spirit the days to come to to remember them, to think on them and meditate on them. We who live in a time when faith has become so perverted and twisted, it's almost a magical tool to get whatever it is you want from God. May we recognize that faith means trusting you you who has revealed himself in the past and who will fully reveal himself in the future. You who has given his spirit to us, who stands with us moment by moment, may we trust you as your people. But perhaps there are some who are not your people, who have not put their faith in you. May your spirit work in their hearts. May they come to see what it means to trust you and to trust in your Son who gave his life that we might have life. And may we be people of our word. May we not enter into covenant lightly. I thank you for this passage and for all that it has to teach us. Thank you for the gift of your word. Now as we leave this place, we pray that your spirit and your grace would go with us. May we be lights in a world of darkness. And we pray this in Jesus' name.